Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I'm looking at how to recover from a disappointing situation, something that Mercedes Formula One team are dealing with right now, but also how every single member of your team, no matter how far up the hierarchy they are, can offer value, ideas, and potential solutions to problems. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. This is a podcast that I started to share some of my experience, some of the things that I have learnt through many years working in Formula One that I now realise can apply to not just big businesses, not just corporations, certainly not just Formula One teams, but to every single one of us. So I hope that through listening to this podcast and many of the others that are in the back catalogue now, you can take something away that you might be able to apply to your daily lives and just help you to overcome problems, to find ideas and solutions to challenges that you might be facing, to live a better, more high-performance life and get you closer to your goals in a more efficient and productive manner. That's what I aim to do. If you're finding any of that, if you get to the end of this podcast and even in the tiniest way, I have somehow helped you even through just sparking a new train of thought. If anything like that has happened to you off the back of one of my podcasts, I ask you this, just this, that you take a moment or two to rate and review to follow or subscribe or to share the episode of the podcast that you enjoyed most, to tell your friends about it. I really want to grow this community bigger and bigger to help more and more people. So look, if you've got a moment to do that, well, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much in advance. Let's get on with today's episode though, because there are a couple of things I really want to cover today. I'd love your feedback on any of the subjects, of course, that we have covered in this episode, but also in any previous ones too. Do drop me a line on social, on YouTube, wherever it is you're watching or listening. Uh, it doesn't matter. Any of those platforms, I will try my very best to respond to you. Um, I want to cover today this idea, as I said earlier, of recovery. When things don't go well, when you set out to achieve some kind of target or some kind of goal, when you've set yourself on a mission and yet it hasn't gone well, it hasn't gone the way that you hoped it would go. It happens to us all. It's part of life. It's part of every single mission that we all go on in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our businesses, you know, in our employee status at work, whatever it might be. We so often, all of us, attempt to do something and it doesn't work out. I mentioned at the start of the show there, Mercedes Formula One team is a perfect example of this. They've come off the back of years of dominance in this sport, utter dominance, where nobody else has been able to get close to them in terms of race wins or championships, certainly not on a sustainable, on a prolonged basis. So they've been used to winning. They've been used to doing things the way they do them and have that translate into fantastic results, the kind of results that they set out and dreamed for right at the beginning of this project. So it'd be completely understandable for a Formula One team off the back of all that success to go into the following year 
looking to do very much the same sort of thing. Not necessarily feeling a great desire to change everything, to do things differently, because they have so much evidence built up to suggest that the way they do things works. The way they currently do things is better than everybody else. Just look at the results. And so when they go into 2022, the Mercedes Formula One team, with a brand new car, with new concepts, they are backed up by the knowledge they have great people, they have great processes, they have a great culture within their organisation. The environment that people work in serves to allow those people to do their best work, to get the very best out of all of those people. These things have been proven over time. And so when they go into 2022 with this new car, with a weight of expectation on them, not just from internally inside their own four walls of their factory, but externally as well. Millions of Formula One fans expecting Mercedes to once again dominate the sport. And when they get to the track, when they hit the track with their brand new car, they suddenly realise it's not working. It's not working the way they expected it to. And so they start to make changes. They start to tweak the car setup. They make adjustments to the car to try and overcome some of the problems they've got. And that doesn't work either. They come up with a redesign. They come up with a, an update package, dramatically different from the way the car first launched, going down a design philosophy that they are utterly confident is going to deliver the results that they require, that they need. And when that new package hits the racetrack, it doesn't work. It doesn't work again. Not only does it not work, but it doesn't work by a long way. They suddenly find their competitors have done a much better job than they have. A number of their competitors have better cars, have cars that they seem to understand more clearly. They understand how to make them work, how to get the best out of them. Their cars seem to be kinder on their tyres. They seem to have greater top speed. They seem to be more drivable than Mercedes' own car. So what on earth has changed? What is it? What's happened since last year to enable Mercedes to fall from grace, from the very top of the championship, to tumble down to at best mid-pack? Now this is the kind of situation that I'm sure every single one of us has found ourselves in. Even if we've not had years of dominance in whatever field we're operating in, we all have skill sets that we must feel we're good at, experience that has added up to the point where we now know we're good at something. We've already been through numerous failures. We must have already been through this learning experience that comes with previous failures. And so many of us, I'm sure, already feel pretty adept in certain areas of our life capable to deliver on whatever we set out to achieve, have an understanding of what it takes to deliver that success or those results. For many of us, maybe we don't necessarily feel adept in a certain subject. For those people, perhaps they're embarking on something new, but perhaps the preparation in terms of taking that leap of faith into that new area, taking on the challenge, hopefully the preparation has been as good as it could be. And yet still, despite all of those things being in the background, building our confidence before we take that leap, still sometimes things can and do go wrong. The situation that the Mercedes Formula One team finds themselves 
in is not unusual, not unusual at all. We're surprised by it because for the last number of years, they have dominated the sport to such an extent that we've become used to it. We've expected it. And again, that will be a situation that I'm sure many people can relate to in their own personal lives. It might just be that we feel in control of our own feelings one day. And yet the next day, we might suddenly feel totally out of control of our feelings and our emotions because things have changed around us. And the point of this discussion that I want to talk about in relation to what Mercedes are doing with their Formula One recovery program is that we all need to find the best way to be able to recover that situation. The fact that we find ourselves in that situation is not unusual. The fact that we find ourselves in that situation doesn't actually have to be the biggest problem in the world. It often feels like it, it often seems like it. I'm sure there are many people within that Mercedes Formula One team who feel like it's the end of the world. Even Lewis Hamilton may well see this as an even bigger problem than in reality it might be. Don't forget, he is coming towards the end of his career, a glittering career that has incredible records associated to it. But there is still one record that's beyond his reach, that eighth world title that will put him firmly in the record books probably for many, many years to come. He wants it. He wants it before he finally hangs up his race gloves. And this year, he would have hoped would be the year. He missed out so narrowly in such controversial circumstances at the end of 2021, he will have wanted to bounce back in 2022 with a car that's capable of taking him to that record eighth world title. And yet, the way the season has started, it looks a world away from that. So you could imagine how Lewis Hamilton might have been feeling when he first uncovered the truth about their 2022 car. When they first put that car on the racetrack and found it didn't work the way they hoped and expected it would. Now, when any of these people, and this includes you and I, but I'm talking about Mercedes as an example here, when any of these people discover the failure, discover the fact that results are not going their way, that things are not working out the way they'd hoped they were going to work out, the fact that in Formula One terms, they have spent a huge amount of time and money on a car that doesn't seem to have the fundamental capabilities to compete with the likes of a Ferrari or even a Red Bull, even other cars on other occasions. They seem to have a car that is mid-table, something they've not been used to for a very, very long time. The temptation when that happens, when we discover that problem, and the same goes for you and I, when we discover something hasn't worked out the way we'd hoped, the way we might wake up one morning and feel out of control in terms of our feelings and emotions. Our mental health and our physical health can take a turn for the worse almost overnight. It can dive bomb to the point where we might wake up one morning with what we see as some pretty serious problems, where we're confused. We don't know what the solution is. We don't know what the answer is. We don't know how to dig ourselves out of the situation we might suddenly find ourselves in. It wasn't what we hoped or expected when we woke up that morning. The same goes for people at work who've made big decisions, tough decisions that could go either way. We obviously hope it's going to go the way we want, but if it doesn't, what do you do? Because you can find yourself seemingly in a hole. 
And the temptation is often to panic, to stress about it, to start throwing potential solutions at the problem. And in the case of the Mercedes Formula One team, we saw the first two races. The second race where Lewis Hamilton failed to even qualify out of Q3. He was in the bottom five, the slowest five cars around the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix circuit. That is not a situation Mercedes or Lewis Hamilton expected to find themselves in. Now you can deal with that in different ways, but because it was so unexpected, because it was such a shock, people often go into shock when they start formulating response to that. We do it emotionally. We come up with shock tactics. We do things that normally we wouldn't do. We make decisions. We say things. We generate actions and behaviours that may be well out of character for us because we're not stopping to think about those behaviours and actions. We are just doing them in a shock response to the situation we find ourselves in. I'm sure we've all done it. I've done it myself. We feel like we have very little control in those situations. Now, the same can be said on a bigger scale for a Formula One team. Lewis Hamilton found himself in the bottom five cars in the second race of the season. And so we went to the third race of the season, the Australian Grand Prix, with everybody expecting to see bits being thrown at that car to try and dig their way out of the problems and the holes that they were in. Even Mercedes initially talks about new rear wings, new floors, all rushing through the system to try and get them there for Australia because they could not have another weekend like the one they had in Saudi Arabia. It was embarrassing for them. It was a wake-up call, a humbling experience. And they didn't like it. They didn't want to be in that situation ever again. And so surely the answer is to throw money at the problem, throw parts at the problem, do something because we can't go to the next race the way we currently are. And yet what happened is, at the Australian Grand Prix, just a couple of weeks later, Mercedes turned up with exactly the same car, with no upgrades, with no rear wing, with no new floor, no new parts on the car of any significance to overcome the problems they had last time out. And people were surprised. People were shocked. What sort of response is that from Mercedes? Look how bad they were last time out. How can they expect to be any different if they don't do something about it? And yet what was going on in the background at Mercedes was a number of detailed and in-depth conversations, a moment of calm. Off the back of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, the initial response, of course, was panic, was shock. They were absolutely bowled over that they found themselves in that situation. They were in uncomfortable and unfamiliar territory. The back of the grid panic set in. There would have been frantic phone calls back to the factory, to the design office. We need to get this part rushed through the system. How far off is the rear wing? Can we accelerate it? Can we drop other things to enable the rear wing to find its way through production and onto the car for Australia? Those conversations, I'm sure, will have happened. Same things around floors. Simulations will have been running frantically to try and find solutions to those problems. But what actually happened in the end was the team had a moment of calm and clarity when they got back to the UK. The dust settled and they had time to reflect. Of course, they reflected on what was a really disappointing weekend at the racetrack. But they also had time to think about the bigger picture, to think about their response 
to the problems and the situation they found themselves in. They could panic and go into panic mode and throw an immediate response at the car, hoping it was going to do some good. With the alternative being going with the same car, pretty much knowing what they've got. And that wasn't a great scenario. And yet that's exactly what they did. Because the conclusion of those calm, level-headed conversations that were happening in response to the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix weekend came to the conclusion that rather than just throw bits at the car that weren't ready, that weren't fully proven or tested, that hadn't been fully simulated and hadn't been simulated, more importantly, in conjunction with all the other bits on the car, with all the new learning and data that they had gathered off the back of that weekend. A huge amount more data than they'd had before they went to the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, having had just one Grand Prix. Essentially, with that second race, they doubled their amount of usable race weekend data. And that comes with a huge amount of learning. Yes, it was a massive failure, particularly on the side of the garage that Lewis Hamilton was in. Qualifying the way he did was a massive wake-up call, but it's also a massive learning experience. Those failures often give us the most learning than the weekends and the days when things go well. Because we're forced to look into it more. If Lewis Hamilton had walked away with that Grand Prix, had qualified on pole position, disappeared up the road and taken the win with the fastest lap, they would have analysed it. They analyse every weekend but they would not have analysed it to the same level, to the same degree and in the same depth that they were forced to off the back of a disappointing weekend, a failure weekend like the one they had. They had to dig even deeper. They had to search even deeper for solutions. And the result was, as I said, rather than just throwing untried and untested bits at the car, desperately hoping one of those bits would solve the problems, would create some kind of performance increase, would alleviate some of the issues they're suffering with. Almost like throwing cooked pasta at the wall to see which bits stick, to identify which bits are fully cooked and which bits are not. It's a messy process. You might get some kind of strike rate, but it's hit and miss. It's random. Plus all your uncooked pastas now lying all over the kitchen floor. It's never going to be as successful. Your hit rate is never going to be as good as if you had a reliable way of measuring the temperature and the time your pasta's been in the water for. In terms of a Formula One car, throwing bits at it in the hope they might work, particularly in 2022, where we're under this tight budget capture regime, is an inefficient way of solving your problem. You may be lucky and get some success, but you may not. And if you're not, well, then you've got another weekend where you're not learning anywhere near as much because you've got so many new bits on the car. You don't really understand if any of them are working or if any of them aren't. You're struggling to collect data that's comparable to the data that you've had from the previous weekends. And so the response that Mercedes ended up taking was this calm, level-headed, measured response where they decided to go to Australia with the same car they went to Saudi Arabia to instrument at least one of those cars with measuring equipment that was going to create a massive data set in the specific areas where they need to understand the car, this bouncing or porpoising effect. How much is the floor flexing? What's happening with ride heights and at what speeds? How's that affecting car performance? 
by instrumenting the car up in those specific areas, yes, it might cost them a couple of kilos of weight, which is not good for overall performance. But if they can go through that weekend and gain an even better level of understanding of their car, comparable directly to the weekend before, where the car was in exactly the same specification, and in the meantime, take time back at the factory to finalise and fine-tune the developments coming through the system, to run even more detailed and in-depth simulations around the areas where they now believe they have these problems, to go deeper and analyse deeper the problems they had in Saudi Arabia, to spend more time assessing those, and of course, to spend more time coming up with solutions, ideas that might overcome the problems, Time generates more ideas. Throwing more people at the problem can generate more ideas. And yet they're not spending the money they would have been spending had they just pushed the button and rushed a lot of those components through manufacturing, thrown them all at the car, where they start to come off your total budget for the season in the desperate hope, with your fingers crossed, that some or all of those are going to work. That's not the way a Formula One team should operate. And it's exactly the same for you and I. It's not the way you or I should operate when we find ourselves in a difficult, tricky situation like that, where we're confused about what the problems are, whether it's our physical or mental health. And this is a big one for so many people around the world right now who are suffering because of what's going on around them, because of the last two years they've just been through with a global pandemic, which has changed their world out of nowhere, flipped it upside down. Some people, many people, are completely overwhelmed and confused about what to do next, how to get themselves back on track. And one of the worst things you can do is to open up things like social media, where there are a plethora of people telling you what to do. Get up at 4am, listen to a podcast, meditate, do your yoga, all these things that somebody else has decided is the, the key or the solution to our problems as a human race. It's nonsense because whilst those solutions may well work for some people, but by having that thrust in front of you when you open your phone in the morning and having that idea being pushed towards you as the total solution to your problems, which is the way it's framed through social media so often, you can be led down an even more confusing path. You are doing the same sort of thing as Mercedes would have done if they'd thrown those bits at the car. You're throwing random solutions at your personal problems. Whereas in reality, it's probably only you who knows what the right solution is for you. Take some time. Stop. Think about it. Be calm. Be measured. Take a moment. Give yourself a little bit of extra breathing space to analyse the problem, to think about you and your makeup. What typically helps you? What makes you stronger? What calms you? What centres you? What's going to allow you to get back on track? No one else knows that apart from you. In my world over the last couple of years, I have had a realisation of what it is that helps my wife when she's struggling. We all have moments when we're struggling and I know what my triggers are. I know what my solutions are. And I have worked towards those. But with my wife, I often used to want to impart my solutions to those problems on her. If she was feeling stressed or if she was feeling down, overwhelmed with certain emotions, 
I know what helps me in that scenario. It helps me to get up early, to spend some time on my own, to carve out some time in my day for just thinking, whether it's a dog walk or getting up before the rest of the family to just do some things, listen to podcasts or read or whatever. Those things help me. They help me no end. And because I've identified them, I'm able to apply them to my life when I need them. But when my wife was struggling with some of the similar issues, I'd often just say to her, look, you need to do this. You need, look, this has helped me. You need to do this. You need to start getting up early. You need to have a, a dog walk. You need to read. You need to do these things that I'm doing because it's helped me. I'm proof it works. Reality is, that's not the answer. Because for Claire, that would be like throwing random solutions at her problem, hoping that one sticks, hoping that one creates the answer or works for her. It's not efficient and it can actually cause more problems because when you throw those potential solutions randomly at a problem, if they don't work, they can actually have an even bigger negative effect than the one you were already in in the first place. They can knock your feelings or emotions the wrong way on the scale. It can actually dent your confidence to such a level you can go the other way. And so what I've learned with Claire, and she of course will have known this long before I ever did, but she hadn't managed to articulate it to me in the way that I was able to understand it. Perhaps I wasn't open enough to understand it in the way she was articulating it. But now what I realise is that the thing that helps her is being productive, is doing something, is creating something, ticking off a box from a job list, spending time in the garden and cutting the grass, tidying it up, clearing up the house, making sure the house is spotlessly tidy, doing something off her job list, ticking something off, is the thing for her that really helps. That's the thing that brings her back on track when things are starting to go a little bit skew if. Now that's not the same thing that necessarily helps me, but now I know it helps her, it allows me to help her in those moments when she needs it to achieve those things. I'll suggest, let's go and tidy the garden. Let's go and prune the hedges. Let's go and start working through the job list, clearing the pile of mail that's sitting in the in tray in the kitchen, pay some of the bills, whatever it might be, ticking things off. The list of jobs that she knows needs to be done helps her because at the end of that, she takes a big sigh of relief and she starts to calm herself down. She starts to bring herself back to a place that's more in control. Now, it's taken me a long time. Claire and I have been together for many, many years, and yet only in the last couple of years have I started to really learn and understand that. I don't think even from Claire's perspective, she really understood it herself until relatively recently. She probably knew it if she stopped and thought about it, but the point was she'd never really stopped and thought about it. And this is what I'm talking about with the Mercedes Formula One team. They stopped and they thought about what their solutions might be to the problems they were facing. Not the ones that everybody just expected, but they realised, they appreciated that for them, knowing how they best operate, knowing the people they've got in their organisation, the tools and the processes, the resource they have available to them, the best way for them to use that, to put the brilliant minds they have on the problem was to take some more time over it was to get a better understanding of the problem before they start thinking about the solution. And that's what they did. And I have no doubt that at some point this season, Mercedes will find their way back into contention. They're too good not to. They may not find the perfect solution 
with their first response. The first parts they bring may not generate the kind of results they're after, but it's an ongoing process. It's something that they will continue to assess, to analyze in this methodical, calm approach that they have with everything. And it will be that approach, I believe, that will generate them the success in the end. It's that very approach that has generated all of the success that they've had over recent years. And I believe it's also an approach that we can all learn from. Taking the time to fully understand the problem, but also to fully understand how we best react. What skills do we have in our armory? Which tools do we have available to us, inside us, that we know work for us because we've tried and tested them in other situations, perhaps similar situations in the past? What evidence can we draw upon to back that up? Or are we just shooting in the dark? Are we just throwing answers to problems that we have no idea whether or not they're going to work? I don't believe that's the answer. And I do, as I said earlier, believe it can end up, in fact, sending things the opposite way. The approach that Mercedes-Benz are taking, whether or not it ends up winning them races or putting them in contention for a world championship this year, it seems very unlikely, but never say never. But what it could do, this measured calm response that Mercedes are taking the time to understand and then carefully implement, could actually have the impact of building the confidence within that team. For somebody like Lewis Hamilton, that confidence could be everything. Confidence in his team knowing that going into, let's say, next year's campaign, that they are now even stronger than they were when they started in 2022 because of the failures they went through, but even more so because of the way they might be digging their way out of it in that Mercedes-esque manner that they seem to be doing it right now. And if that ends up yielding the right results, if they overturn the problem, they will come out of the other side of that problem so much better armed for the future. This could end up being one of those big moments, one of those moments that in the future we might be able to look back and pinpoint the struggles that Mercedes are having right now as potentially being the beginning of the process which might eventually lead to the success that I'm sure they'll have. Potentially even that elusive eighth world title that Lewis Hamilton's looking for. Perhaps those results, that success, can be traced all the way back to the problems they're facing right now, but more importantly, the way they're searching for solutions to those problems. Because that is how you build your way out of trouble. That is how you utilize the skills, the experience, the resource that you have available to you that works best for you. And whilst that approach, I believe, will work for Mercedes as a Formula One team, I also believe that same kind of approach can work for us as human beings. Obviously, for that approach to work, there has to be a level of self-awareness, an understanding of what it is that works for you. Self-awareness, of course, is an ongoing journey of discovery. It's constant. We are going through it and have been going through it for our entire lives, whether we like it or not or appreciate it or not. It's the constant building up of evidence that we can then draw upon. It's the constant understanding of who we are and how we're made up. Those things are happening to us all the time. But to make a conscious decision to become more self-aware, 
I believe, makes us far more powerful for moments like the ones we're talking about. I talked about the differences between my wife Claire and I in terms of how we might deal with what might look like a very similar situation when we become stressed, emotional, tired, whatever it might be, facing some major challenge. For Claire, she needs a total distraction from that. She needs to be taken away from that and generate some sense of achievement that she's doing something positive for herself. Whereas for me, I kind of need the opposite. I need to take myself away from any distraction and I need to look inward. I need to focus specifically on the problem. I want to figure out a solution. I want to start working on that immediately with myself. Totally different way of looking at the problem. And on some days it might take me longer to reach that solution. On other days it might take Claire longer. But the point is, as long as we both arrive at a place that we're comfortable and happy with, it almost doesn't matter how we get there. That's just a personal thing to us, whatever works for us. For some people, of course, it takes longer than others. For some people, time is literally the thing that they need to work through the problems and to get back to a place of being under control again. Time is fine. Time is okay. It's okay to utilise time if that's what you need. And I do appreciate that some situations might feel time sensitive. If something hasn't worked out, something's gone wrong, you might feel under time pressure to reach that solution more quickly. And my answer to that is that is something that you can build towards. Like I've talked about in previous episodes, whatever we're trying to achieve in times in terms of doing things differently in the future. We can train ourselves to become better at it. We can train ourselves to need less time to reach the point that we might take a long time right now to eventually end up at. That comes with practice. It comes with doing it over and over again. It becomes, it comes with being more self-aware about what it is you need to get to, what it is you need to achieve, how you need to get there. Those things will come more quickly the more and more we do them. The more aware we are, that we are doing them. The point is making a conscious and deliberate effort to become more self-aware, to gain a better understanding of our own strengths and weaknesses, the things that we can rely on to get us out of trouble. In the big moments when we are in trouble, when we find ourselves in an unexpected situation, like Mercedes with their Formula One car in 2022, Mercedes are able to draw on the valuable skills, the experience, the knowledge, the expertise that they know they have, the culture and the environment they've built over many years that has delivered them success. They know that that is a good, solid base to work from. They know where their strengths and weaknesses lie. And then they're able to draw on those to formulate a carefully measured plan to get themselves out of the problems that they're facing. We can do exactly the same. But to do that, we need to know what we're good at, what we're not so good at. We need to know what gets us back on track when things have gone slightly astray. And to do that, we need to spend some time working on ourselves, talking to ourselves, listening to ourselves, understanding ourselves, looking back over our own history for the evidence that we can use to build that picture of what works for us but equally what doesn't work for us. Which moments have created more stress when we've panicked, when we've done the wrong thing, 
Are there moments when we did eventually come out of the other side of a dark period? And what was it? What can we pinpoint during those periods that might have helped us get there? Have a think about it. We've all got it. It's all there. We've just got to find it. We've got to uncover it. We've got to remember it. We've got to trace back to those moments. But if you can have a think about that this week, it might just help you in a moment that you don't know is coming yet. A moment you're not expecting but a moment that can really cause you harm, that can cause you problems and distress when it does arrive. But if we have done this work prior to that happening, we're better prepared for it. We can have a better reaction to it. We'll be less panic stricken. We'll do less of the throwing random solutions at the problem, hoping they're going to stick, hoping they're going to work. And we might find a more efficient response, a bespoke response to us that gets us closer to our goals more quickly and gets us back on track. Okay, let's move things on a little bit. Um, this last week, I have been filming uh, for the next series of Wheeler Dealers and a large part of that was filmed up in North Yorkshire, driving a beautiful car, can't tell you what it is yet, but beautiful open top sports car on the incredible roads of the North Yorkshire Moors. Now, that was an amazing experience. It's gonna be a brilliant sequence and it'll end up making a great show, but the North Yorkshire Moors are a long way from where I live. Now, we were filming the day before heading up there, so instead of me driving, I jumped in the car, the production car, with the runner on our show. Now, in a television world, television production, the runner is the lowest ranked person on the production. It's where you start your career, typically, in television. So a bit like an apprentice in some other industries, a gopher. It's the person who makes the tea, sweeps the floors, generally does the kind of jobs that most people don't want to do to allow the other people on the production to do what they need to do to make the television show. It's an important role because those things need to happen. There's an awful lot of stuff that goes on in the background of any production and presumably in any business that needs to happen that could distract the people higher up that hierarchical chain from doing the work that they are experienced at, that they are professionals in, that they're experts at, that they're paid to do. So you always need somebody that's willing to take on that role. And typically it's the kind of person who is embarking on a career or wants to embark on a career in that industry. And that's their first step on the ladder. It's the first job in television for most people. They start as a runner. And I got a lift for four hours on a four hour journey with the runner. And look, I've been working with this person for the best part of a year now. I feel like we know each other well because we're there together almost every single day filming the show. And they are in the background. They are helping. They're playing a really crucial and important role in our production. And they're incredibly good at their job. They are a fantastic runner. And they will go on to have a brilliant career in television, I have no doubt. But what typically doesn't happen with the runner or whoever the lowest ranked person is in most companies or in most industries, in many team situations, is that person doesn't always get listened to in the same way that many other people on the production or in the, biz in the business does. Many other people get preference or priority when it comes to listening to their ideas, when it comes to having opinions and having input in decisions. The runner typically never gets asked for their opinion on those big moments that affect the outcome of our show. 
So I spent four hours in a car. Now, bearing in mind I'm the presenter of this show, agree or not, for whatever reason, the presenter is often seen as one of the very top people in that hierarchy. So in this scenario, we've got the very top person in our production, one of them, with the very bottom person in that production in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of the structure of our organisation. Now, very rarely do two opposite ends of a spectrum in any business find themselves in the same confined space on a car journey for four hours. It would be like the apprentice in a big company finding themselves stuck in a car with the CEO or with the founder of that huge organisation for a four hour journey. Now, For the runner, that gives them great access to hopefully learn from that person, to ask questions, to probe and to interrogate and to get some feedback on what they're doing, but also just to learn from the person who's clearly much more experienced in that role than they are in their journey on their career. But what doesn't often happen is it goes the other way around. It doesn't often happen that the CEO of a company will interrogate or will learn from the person that's right down at the very bottom of the shop floor. The largest expanse of the pyramid of their company is so quite often detached from the person who's at the very pinnacle, the very top, the point of that pyramid, that they rarely ever interact with each other at all, let alone for that extended period of time. And what was interesting about our journey, this four-hour journey, shoehorned into a car packed full of other production kit all around us, was that this became an opportunity for me. That's how I viewed this, because... I hadn't had enough time, even though we've worked together for over a year now, I hadn't had any one-on-one time with this person. I hadn't had a time to really get to know the person outside of the work environment. And for me, that's really important. I always love to try and do that because that tells you an awful lot more about that person, about what they want, what they need, what they can do, what they can't do, what their strengths and weaknesses are, what their interests are what they find easy, what they find hard, what they can offer to us as a production. And I say this to businesses all the time, no matter who you are, no matter who you have in your business, every one of those people, no matter what it says on their business card, no matter what their role, they all have something to offer. They will all have had some kind of life experience, even well outside of the industry you're working in. They'll have had life experience that you haven't had. And there, right there, is an opportunity to learn something. And it could not be truer. And I believe this wholeheartedly. And so when we were sat in this car for this long period of time, I did exactly that. I got to know our runner on a much better basis than I had ever had the opportunity to do before. As a person, as a human being, but also as part of that extended conversation. And by the way, this went the other way. So I offered myself as well. I offered an insight into me. I gave up a huge amount of information about who I am away from work, what sort of things I do, what I like, all my interests, my family life, all of the things that would never normally come out in the work scenario. I feel like that's valuable for someone else to understand so that we all have a better picture of who we all are. These people we work with every single day. For a long period of time, this is a long-running, ongoing production. We might be together for years working on this same show. 
And yet, how well do we really know each other? How well do you really know the people that you work with? How well do you know the people you work for? And how well do they know you? But it can even go further than that. The people closest to you, your friend group and family group. How well really do they know you? Particularly if you're now an adult, moved away from home, carved out a life for yourself, well away from the comfort of your parents' family home that you may have grown up in. Your life can take a completely different fork to the one that you spent the first 15, 16, 17, 18 years of your life on. Your parents may not have a clear understanding of what your life looks like today. And the same goes the other way. You may not have any idea what they now do on a daily basis now you've gone. Life might have changed for both of you. And it can be really valuable to share some of those experiences. I mean, even more so, I believe, in the work situation, in the situation of a company and a business. The people in any business are literally the biggest asset any company has. They're the most valuable asset, but they're also the most fragile, the most precious asset you have. And if you don't look after that asset, if you don't nurture it, if you don't find ways to get the best out of it, to protect it, you will lose it. It will deteriorate over time. People leave, people become unhappy, and then you don't get the best out of those people. And so how do you protect that asset? You start to get an understanding of them. You, you practice empathy between colleagues. You start to get to know the people around you, the people beneath you and the people above you. Hierarchy shouldn't really come into this in any way in terms of understanding who you're working with. And having an understanding of who you're working with can offer so much more value to you as an individual, to your team and to your wider company. And so this car journey with the runner and I was exactly that. It was an opportunity to get a much better understanding of who we both were. And you know what came out of that? Some really great ideas. Some great ideas from the runner of our show. The person who by far gets paid the least. The person who is never asked for their opinion on any of the major factors that contribute to a good show being made or not. And yet here I was asking exactly those questions. Here I was trying to determine whether the person at the bottom of the tree had anything to offer in terms of our production, the person at the top of that tree. Could this person, the runner, offer insight and advice? Could they offer ideas that might make our show better? Given that this person is always around, they're always running around the floor, the studio floor, the workshop floor. They might be delivering teas. They might be sweeping up and clearing up mess. They might be tidying things. They might be putting things away. They might be organising the lunch orders. But they're around. They are listening. They are picking up bits of information. They're seeing things that other people just don't see because they're so zoned in on their particular area of expertise inside this production. So the runner, the apprentice, the gopher, they see things that others simply don't see. And in just that alone, that offers value. That offers a different perspective that most people that are engrossed in producing the show, in directing the show, in filming the show, in presenting the show, just haven't got the spare capacity to see from that angle. When I was back at McLaren, we had a guy on the team who had a similar type of role. He was essentially the race team cleaner. 
the main bulk of his role was to run around all race weekend, cleaning things, polishing things, making sure that the garage looked spotless at all times. When the car came in for a run, he would be the first person on it with a polish and a rag, making sure that it looked immaculate whenever the cameras were there, whenever anyone saw it, whenever it stopped turning a wheel, we wanted it in the smallest time possible to look gleaming again. And we had an incident a couple of years into my tenure at the team where this guy jumped on the car the moment it wheeled back into the garage with his can of polish and a rag. And this is exactly what we told him to do. And he leapt on the car, he sprayed it with polish, he cleaned it. He took away any marks, any dirt, any bits of rubber, any pickup, anything that wasn't supposed to be there, he would remove. And we had a situation on the rear suspension of our car in one particular year where the exhausts exited very close to the suspension. And what was happening after every single run, that suspension was suffering discoloration because it was so close to the exhaust gases. It was essentially starting to burn the wishbone on the rear end of the car. But because the car came in and within seconds... Our guy was all over it, spraying it, cleaning away any of this discoloration, polishing it back to being perfect as it should be when it came out of the factory. The mechanics didn't really spot the fact that this wishbone was suffering clearly from an excessive amount of heat coming out the exhaust. Now, what happens over time, of course, is the metal that was that lower rear wishbone, it was made of steel back in the day, that metal was beginning over time to suffer heat fatigue. It was gradually weakening with this constant excessive buildup of heat in this localised area. But because by the time the car settled and everyone had got the wheels off and taken a moment to start looking at it, any witness marks of that excessive heat buildup had been rubbed away. They'd been cleaned off. They'd been polished off because that was what his job was. Now at the time, we had no desire to hear any input from the race team cleaner. In terms of how we ran the car or how we set up the car or how the car was operating, we didn't want to hear from him on that. That wasn't his job. His job was simply to clean the car and then get out of the way so the mechanics could get in and do their job. And yet he had a perspective on the rear end of that car that had some valuable information. Information that no one else was really noticing to the same extent because when he'd done his job, the signs of that had gone. But that valuable information that he had, he was holding on to because he didn't necessarily understand the full importance of it. But because there was no clear line of communication between his role and the people further up the tree, there was no means of him sharing his learnings, his understandings of what he was seeing. He was simply carrying out the task that we had made it very clear, that's all we wanted him to do, clean the car, then get out the way. It's a high pressure environment, there isn't time or space to have an extra person milling around, interfering as we might have seen it back then. So he did his job, he got out the way, and he moved off onto another area of the garage. And in doing so, the rear suspension on our car was becoming gradually weaker and weaker and weaker. And it was only by sheer luck that somebody one day noticed these witness marks before the cleaner had managed to jump in and clean them away, that we began to understand the severity of the problem with our inherent car design, with the exhaust running so close to this metal lower rear wishbone. 
we managed to uncover the problem, we managed to solve it, and we managed to put some heat protective shielding around the wishbone and alleviate the problem. But if we hadn't noticed that, if it had gone on and on, we might have suffered a very severe failure as a Formula One race team simply because, and it would have been because this, simply because we weren't willing or open to listen to the experience, the knowledge, the understanding, the perspective of everybody within our organisation. We had no means to channel that information from one level up to the next. We disconnected ourselves from the cleaner because of the menial tasks, as we saw them, that he was employed to do had no bearing other than aesthetics on what we were doing as a team of race mechanics and engineers. And it's exactly the same on our TV production. The runner may not be pointing the camera in the right direction. They may not be focusing the camera. They may not be saying the words to camera or directing the person saying the words but they do have a valuable perspective on what's going on with all of that because they see the whole thing from a different angle than most people see it. And that in itself offers huge value if you're willing to listen to it, if you're willing to allow that information to flow through your business or your company, to flow through your team, to flow through your family. Interestingly, in our scenario, the runner highlighted to me that there was a lack of communication down at their level in that quite often they didn't really know what was going on until it happened. Because whilst there were emails flying around, there were meetings happening, there were conversations happening further up the pecking order, talking about what we were going to do, when we were going to do it, clearly what's been happening, and this is an oversight on our part, but clearly what's been happening is we haven't been consistently passing that crucial information down to the runners. Now, how are they to prepare the kit that we need? How are they to organise logistics, make sure cars are fueled up if we're going on a long journey? Basic tasks, but tasks that can make the production fall over if they're not done at the right time. How can we expect them to be done at the right time and to the right level of quality if they don't know what's happening in advance? We're hampering one element of our team by not giving them all the information when they need it, by not seeing that job or that role as important as any other role on the production, which it is. It's a very different role. It has importance in different areas, but it's important. And so one of the things that I am now feeding back to the rest of the team is exactly that. Simple oversight, but one that makes their life very difficult one that hampers them from doing their job to the best of their ability. And if any one person in any team is not able to function to the best of their ability, your team is not operating at the highest level of strength that it should be and could be. And it's simply a matter of communication. Now, had I not been in the car for this four hours, had I not instigated this conversation, had I not asked those questions, we would probably have never have known because the runner because of their position in the team, often doesn't feel confident enough, doesn't feel brave enough, doesn't feel empowered enough to raise a question like that. Quite often, because they're brand new to the industry, they don't know any different. So maybe they just think that's how it is. And if that's the way, if that's the way your company structure is perceived by the people at the very bottom, then you're missing out on an enormous number of potential ideas of solutions, of opportunities that could fall your way 
if that person did feel empowered, if they did feel as much a part of the team as anybody else, if there was a clear line of communication open to them. And you might have to make that happen. That might be something that traditionally has never existed in your area of society, in your company, in your friend group or family. But tradition doesn't have to be the way we only ever do things moving forward. We have the power to make changes. And if we see an opportunity to change things for the better, if it's not going to have knock-on negative consequences, why would we not do it? Why would we not embrace that change or instigate that change? That's exactly what I tried to do this week with our runner. It's a very, very small gesture on my part, but because we were thrown into that scenario, an unlikely scenario that rarely ever happens, we were able to have that conversation. And one of the things it's sparked in my mind, something I'm going to push for on our production, is that we have more of these conversations, not just by accidentally being thrown together in a car, but that we instigate these conversations, that we offer everybody and anybody the opportunity to put forward ideas. It might seem like such an obvious thing to do, but you'd be amazed how many huge companies around the world, some of the biggest companies that I go and see on a regular basis, you'd be amazed how many companies don't have such a structure in place. They don't have any means for people to raise questions or ideas or put forward suggestions without it being lost in multiple layers of bureaucracy and red tape. And if that happens, people don't even bother putting forward those ideas. They don't have any confidence that the ideas will be listened to by anybody that can actually make a difference. But if we change that, if we force that through, if we force a situation that gets the ideas from wherever they might come from, from every single person that has something to offer, directly to a person who has the ability to either act upon it or scale it up the tree to somebody who can act upon it, we massively expand the potential of our businesses, of our friend groups, of our families. Kids are a perfect example of this. How many parents don't listen to their children, don't listen to ideas their children put forward with the same level of importance that they would listen to an idea coming from a colleague at work. We often tell our kids to go away because mummy and daddy are busy talking to a friend. And yet those kids might have some valuable perspectives that we may have lost in our life because it's so long since we've been a kid. I talked just last week about exactly this on this podcast, how I'm actively now trying to work towards listening more to my kids, to involving them more in conversations that affect them, giving them the opportunity to help shape those conversations and those decisions that might need to be made. I don't always have to go with what my kids say, but listening to their perspective and allowing them to know that I'm listening, which is the most important thing allows the ideas to keep coming. And just once, just once, you might get a nugget of information from somebody that helps you to become more successful, more powerful as an organisation, more efficient, more productive. Any of the things that make you better and get you closer to your goals and targets, those ideas can come from anywhere. The note that I wrote in my diary after that day in the car with the runner on our show simply says... Everyone has something to offer you. And I believe that sentence 
could not be truer. So have a think about that this week. Can you change your way of thinking just a little bit? My example of what happened in our Formula One team potentially avoided some kind of catastrophe, let alone the results that it might have saved on the racetrack. It might have avoided catastrophe. Just think about that for a moment. If our lines of communications or lack of them in our team back in the day could have led to a potential disaster on the racetrack, a safety disaster, how serious is that? And just because we weren't willing to listen or to give people the power to put their ideas and suggestions forward, no matter who they were. I think it's a powerful lesson from a Formula One team. It's also a powerful lesson in life and something that I would encourage you to go away and think about this week. There must be occasions and opportunities in your life where you can do more in that space. I'm going to do it myself. I'll let you know how I get on, both at work, in my family, surroundings, but also in wider society. I want to try and listen to more people's perspective because not only could it potentially help me, they will all have something to offer. I can learn a huge amount. And if I can learn from anybody, I can then share that with somebody else. And so the love and the knowledge start spreading further around the world. And that, I guess, can only be a good thing. That's where I'm going to leave it, folks, uh, this week. I hope you've enjoyed this one. This officially is the beginning of series three. Although there's no break, this is the third block of 10. I'm going to keep the series for what it's worth in blocks of 10. It means nothing other than the way they're numbered. But this is series three, episode 21. So I appreciate every single one of you who've been here from the beginning. And if you haven't, if you're new around here, please do. Go back and listen to the first 20 episodes. They're all there for you to enjoy at your leisure. And I hope you might learn something that I have once learned myself through time in this elite environment of Formula One. If that helps you, please do show me some love. Drop me a message on social media. Share the podcast around. I would love you to do that. Tag me in it if you do. I'll repost it. I'd love to respond to you to say thank you. And if you can, leave me a rating and a review, especially in the Apple Podcast Store. I would be hugely, hugely appreciative. Thank you so much, guys. Have a brilliant, brilliant week. And don't forget, whatever it is you're doing, do the right things and do the things right. Ta-da.